you just heard there was one of the songs of the indigenous Marin community of West Papua, recorded by Sophie Chow on a recent mapping exhibition. Sophie joins us today as the first guest of the Sydney Environment Institute podcast series, which has grown from a recent two-day symposium on the re-emergence of nature in culture. This symposium, the second of its kind, was an opportunity for Indigenous scholars and people working with Indigenous scholars and Indigenous peoples to come together and discuss the ways in which culture and nature are entwined in the philosophies, lives and strengths of Indigenous peoples. Importantly, we reflect on the leadership these perspectives offer as the world faces multiple challenges. Need I list them? Things like climate change, pollution and associated biocultural destruction. Sophie Chow is a postdoctoral research associate with the University of Sydney's School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry and with the Charles Perkins Centre. She's been working with the Marand people of Indonesian West Papua for many years and it's about her experiences with them, their philosophies and their challenges as life around them changes that she'll be talking to us today. First of all, Sophie... Can you tell me a little bit about your research interests, your current projects, and how you found yourself working in this space? Thank you, Christine, and thank you for having me on this um, podcast series after the wonderful uh, symposium on the reemergence of nature and culture. Uh, so as an environmental anthropologist by training, I'm interested in broad terms in the relationships of different human societies with the environment, both across time and across space. Over the last five years, I've had a particular interest in the impacts of ecological degradation, particularly capitalist project-driven ecological degradation on the life worlds, environments, and more than human relationships of indigenous communities across the tropical belt. So my doctoral research involved long-term ethnographic fieldwork among one particular indigenous groups, uh, group in the Indonesian-controlled region of West Papua, who over the last decade have seen vast areas of their customary lands and forests raised and converted to monocrop oil palm plantations. And my interest really is in how Capitalist natures, like large-scale plantations, reconfigure multi-species relations in these indigenous places across these indigenous lands and how these experiences are then conceptualized, interpreted and contested by indigenous communities. So I'm um, still doing a lot of work on these multi-species entanglements. Part of my new research now is looking more specifically at how ecological crises affect indigenous foodways food-based ecologies and socialities, um, and how these in turn relate to the plants and animals from whom foods derive. So looking at the link between nutrition, culture, and the environment. Why am I interested in these topics? Um, From my much earlier days working in the human rights sector um, at at the UN as well, I became very aware of the fact that there are many, many lessons to be learned, both philosophical and practical from indigenous communities who have never lived by a divide between nature and culture, a divide that I think is really at the root, at the core of many of the um, ecological crises um, that we are seeing uh, today really at a global scale. So for me, there is an incredible source of 
wisdom, um, and again, applied as much as philosophical wisdom that, uh, that, that comes from indigenous societies and their more than human cosmologies um, and philosophies. And so part of my work really as an anthropologist is to in some ways act more as a medium than anything else to help raise the voices, raise the stories, raise the experiences of peoples in out-of-the-way places whose voices are very rarely heard, mm-hmm. both at the national and the international level. So what you're discussing, Sophie, was so much a thread through the whole of that uh, two days discussion, which was about how um, Indigenous people themselves uh, still have very strong agency and are still very much uh, are very powerful within their own rights. And I think it's very easy for us to forget that and for us to think of them entirely as victims. Um, so it's great that you start from a position, uh, as most of the speakers will in this series, of, um, of agency and of strength and of uh, Indigenous um, power, I suppose. However, what I want to do now is to really focus in on the paper you gave, which just, I think it captivated everybody in the room. Uh, You were telling us about an exploration through the forest to map the forest, but to map the forest in a way that was a very different way of representing space uh, and, and of representing place than we're used to in our Western paper based maps. So what I want to do is focus on that here. You know, first of all, I think we need to talk about the, the power in a map and the way that maps are used as a tool, both to help us, assist us to understand the lay of the land, mm-hmm. and yet they're also tools of domination. And that became very clear in your discussion, that they, they are used to dominate people, to dominate cultures, to dominate landscape, and to dominate critters. So in the area where you were doing your research, can we start by talking about how the Marin people, I think it is, the Marin regard the maps of the government and government departments and the business interests? So, yes, as you um, absolutely rightly point out, maps have historically been instrumental to states, and particularly imperial states, in asserting their control over people's places territories, practices, and more than human critters. At the same time, um, maps have been hugely instrumental in indigenous counter-mapping strategies to try to reclaim and seek recognition for their customary rights to these very same territories mm-hmm. and their more than human inhabitants. So among Marin communities in West Papua, where I've had the privilege to do uh, research fieldwork over the last six years, state maps have been absolutely central to the dispossession and displacement of indigenous communities. And there are several reasons for this. Um, first of all, these state maps do not recognize customary land rights or demarcate indigenous land boundaries or claims. They also neglect the more than human inhabitants that Marin understand to be rightful in occupants of these very same territories and that, that share this landscape with humans. Um, these maps are also incredibly difficult for Indigenous peoples to access in the first place. And most of the time, they don't actually know what's on these maps, uh, the sort of projects or reconfigured spatial configurations that the state and corporations have for these spaces, often for, for instance, oil palm developments, mining, timber and logging. Um, and these maps are widely criticised for Marind um, 
the maps in general, but also particularly the straight lines that characterize state maps. And indeed, if you look at some state maps, um, they are effectively composed of straight lines, the lines of concession boundaries, the lines of administrative regions and districts, the lines demarcating military garrisons and barracks, um, even the straight lines of settlements, most of which were set up during the Dutch colonial period as part of enforced sedentarization initiatives. So there are straight lines all over these maps. And these straight lines, to Marind, um, deaden the landscape. They flatten the landscape. They impose an order, a rigidity uh, that does not actually exist um, in the phenomenological life world. Of course, the straight lines of maps in some ways very accurately represent the straight lines on the ground, right, Mm. of these concessions, of these administrative boundaries that not not only restrict the movements of Marwind across the landscape, but also restrict the movements of plants and animals, right, Um, and replace them with one with a single cash crop, which Mm. is oil palm. So state maps are problematic because they... They ossify, they sort of stultify a place that is made through movement, human and non-human. It's also, these maps are aerial maps, so they're a top-down perspective on space, which is another, um, uh, with another critique among Marin that, 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 top-down maps in some ways replicate the top-down perspective and control of the state, Mm. a state that doesn't have a bottom-up perspective um, that comes from living in, from, and with the land. Rather, they survey it from the top and then, you know, assume that they are in a better position to know what's best for Mm. the inhabitants of the landscapes being mapped. So there's all kinds of complex power hierarchies and forms of control that come with the the way in which state maps represent um, place as merely space and really as abstract space, as a commodity to be engineered, exploited, demarcated, um, you know, in some ways vivisected, you could say, to serve the productionist agendas of capitalism. Mm. So I, I think what, I, what I've heard in that is, one, the resistance to these maps is a function of uh, the power imbalance. But secondly, it's about the fact that they don't actually represent the world in the way that the Marin know the world. Um, and when I say know the world, I mean really know their world. Um, and the uh, the flows through that world, that those straight lines are uh, either ignoring or creating barriers to. Terrific. So you then describe for us a, a really quite delightful journey as you went out with the Marin people to map their world in their way. Can you share that with the people who are going to be listening with us here on this podcast? Because it was truly, truly uh, entertaining um, journey. Absolutely. Um, so, yes, a lot of my... I, I, I'm... I'm very much a proponent of activist research. So my research was not just about trying to understand and immerse myself in Marin life world. I was also at the same time doing what I could to try to support them in their grassroots land rights movements and campaigns. And part of that involved um, doing participatory mapping as part of this counter strategies of counter mapping um, that I mentioned earlier. And participating in these mapping expeditions really was one of the most eye-opening, or I should say ear-opening, and you'll understand why in a minute, um, experience and way in which I came to understand the way that land, the landscape is, you know, exists through sounds uh, and through life 
human and non-human and through movement. So on, on one of these expeditions, um, an expedition that lasted just over three weeks, I traveled the landscape with a group of uh, Marind clan elders. Um, and we were equipped with our GPS units and we started walking through the forest. And we walked, we walked um, looking for sites of importance, sacred groves, sacred burial sites and so on. And at some point as we walked, the leader of our group, uh, uh, Marcus, um, uh, elder from the Basik Basik clan, the pig clan, stopped in his tracks and... He stood there for a few minutes and then he told me, this is our first GPS point. You need to map that into the machine, the GPS. I was looking around and not knowing the forest, really all I could see was green around me. I, I couldn't even differentiate one tree from another. And I really wasn't sure what Marcus was asking me to map. And so I asked him and he said, well, can't you hear it? Can't you hear the song, the song of the Rao, which is the Marin name for the black crested bulbul, said, listen to it, it's the sound of the bird, it's telling us it knows we're here. This makes this place an important place because we're not alone, we are with the Rao. Quick, quick, you, you must map it before it flies away. Now, luckily enough, a technologically savvy NGO friend of mine had uh, installed sound recording software in my GPS, so I was able to record the whistle of this bird that was hidden in the canopy that I could, could not see, but that I could almost, uh, that I could, that I could hear. And then Marcus starts to tell me the story of the Rao, where it first, where it was first born, where it flies to, where it mates, roosts, nests, where it goes to sing its last song or where it goes to die, the reason why its wings are bright yellow, uh, the reason why um, it goes to particular bends of the river to feed and rest. And as he tells me the story, really the life map, if you wish, of this bird, he starts to cry and other members of the group lower their heads and start to cry. And they tell me they, they are remembering their mothers through the story of this bird. They're remembering their kin. They're remembering the sago groves that they once walked through and that no longer exist because they've been replaced by all palm plantations. And then the whistle starts to fade away. And my friends tell me we must follow it. The bird is telling us to follow it. And every expedition that I participated in was very much guided by the sounds and the movements of forest species, species that Marind consider to be agentive, volitional, and sentient beings with whom they entertain relationships of kinship and common descent from ancestral spirits. And it is not up to the human to decide where you go to map or what you map. It is up to the human to learn how to hear, to listen, and to follow the sounds of these species. And so mapping the forest really is, is an incredible meander across place, guided by other than human sentient beings. Um, and I suppose one of the most fascinating things that came out of the process was the limits of sci scientific secular technology like GPS um, to accommodate um, mm. these kinds of bioacoustics, if you wish, sound coordinates. So I was recording the sounds of the birds. I was recording, you know, the GPS coordinate itself in sort of abstract space. I was recording the stories that people were telling me about this bird, um, the sighing, the sobbing, the weeping, all of which created this intricate how human life map, which we follow through space. Uh, and for me, that was a really poignant experience. Um, and it was one uh, that, that, that was replicated in various forms as we walked through the landscape, because following one species then led to follow another, mm. um, a species that perhaps this bird entertained a symbiotic relationship with or had previously had an important encounter with or event, one that's recounted in oral histories. Um, so different species, different critters flow in and out of these living maps of space and place. 
So what you're describing is something very, very different to what we're used to uh, in the West when we understand the term map, which you know, each different form of map describes something in isolation. It might describe property in isolation. It might describe land form in isolation. It might describe um, waterways in isolation. It might describe species, in a sense, in isolation. What you're talking about is an entangled, a map of entanglement, a map of um, coexistence, as it were. Is there any way that that can be transformed into a paper representation? Did you go down that track? Or is it only possible to maintain these sorts of representations of relationship in story, in song, in dance, in, in, in a flowing medium rather than a static medium? Yes, I mean, absolutely. We're talking here about a fundamentally different premise um, in terms of understanding space, uh, one that very much, uh, you know, conflicts with the abstraction that a map is in the very first place, conflicts with the isolation that things like even cartographic legends represent, right? Um, and also uh, conflicts with the the ocular centrism, the, the visual dimension of maps. Here we're talking about soundscapes, um, where sounds not only move people across the landscape, but also are deeply moving. To hear these sounds brings up, conjures all kinds of emotions, memories, reminiscences of past kinships, past relationships across species lines. So it's a, it's a, moving, it's a moving process in, in both senses of the term, I suppose. Now, the degree to which these soundscapes can be accommodated by the visual medium of the map, I'm, these are conversations that I have had and that I continue to have at length with indigenous Maoran communities. Um, there's been a lot of debate and discussion over the compatibility of so-called traditional ecological knowledge, or what I prefer to call indigenous science, and Western uh, secular technologies. Um, but very few of those conversations have actually happened with the indigenous communities who are involved in these mapping processes uh, and who are the first to be impacted by the, uh, the form and outcomes of mapping uh, in context of negotiations and advocacy, for instance. So for me, really, the, the important point the important part is to have those conversations with the people who are most directly implicated in the mapping process. Um, well, the way we worked around it was we, we, we had visual maps, uh, which we then uploaded to um, Google Earth on a website called Mata Papua, which means the Papuan Eye. Uh, this is a multi-stakeholder online map that people can feed coordinates in to track things such as timber plantation, timber uh, or logging expansion, oil palm and pulp and paper plantation expansion, and it's publicly available. So we uploaded these GPS points along with the sound files, photographs um, of the stories, the sounds that accompany and that give flesh really to these uh, GPS points. So that was a way in which we were trying to you know, really try to capture the multi-sensory dimension of indigenous, uh, of indigenous life, landscapes and life worlds. Um, another uh, discussion we've been having uh, with uh, Marind over the last few months, actually, I only just returned from West Papua a couple of uh, a week or so ago, uh, is the degree to which we could uh, use virtual reality technologies to try to really give um, viewers, listeners a, a, a more multisensory sense of what it's like to be in the places mapped. And after, of course, there are all kinds of practical um, impediments and opticals um, the part of the world that I'm talking about is very remote. There's no signal. There's no electricity. Um, these technologies are expensive. Uh, local NGOs have very limited capacity. 
But I think that it's precisely the kind of emergent or innovative mapping technology that we, we need to be we need to be working with, we need to be uh, uh, working on to improve them. These technologies need to be tailored to the particular cultural contexts and locales in which they're being deployed. Sound matters to Marind, somewhere else it may be some other sensory medium. Um, so I think they really need to be locally specific. Um, and I think uh, there are a lot of indigenous organizations where I work that are indigenous organizations and coalitions that are doing a lot of incredible, incredible work at the grassroots to fashion more culturally appropriate, culturally sensitive, and therefore more accurate uh, technologies to represent landscapes and changes within those landscapes. So that's really interesting, isn't it? The irony is that it's the newer technologies, the cutting edge of technologies that are going to give the power to these people to represent life as they know it. Um, and I think there is some irony in that, in that, in that it's also the new technologies that are destroying their domain and their life. But... Um, if I might just add yeah, to that, I, mean, I suppose there's also it's an absolutely um, valid point you just made. The bigger irony, of course, is the need to make a map in the first place. For, you know, Marin do not need maps. They've never had written, you know, drawn maps, and they don't need them because they know the landscape through their oral histories. Um, they say they know the landscape through their skin, actually, you know, because they walk the forest, they are physically engaged with it in a very deeply phenomenological sense, and uh, they know the stories. Um, natural boundaries and markers are all storied. Um, so the only reason they really need to be doing all of this and trying to work with these technologies and, and, and produce maps is because they're facing an incredible threat from um, agribusiness, from corporate activity, um, from an predatory states as well. Um, so the, the very need to make these maps in itself is, 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 is a symptom of the very significant pressures on land and on livelihoods that they're facing uh, as a result of capitalist incursions. Okay, that's really interesting, Sophie, because what you've just done is you've preempted my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so in a sense, you've answered it, but I would be interested if you wanted to expand on it. So my question was going to be that Indigenous activism comes within the circles of your research. And what makes Marin activism? What, what does that look like? What makes activism for Marin? And particularly, what challenges do they face as activists? Thanks for that question, um, Christine. So uh, Indigenous Marind in, uh, uh, in the part of West Papua where I work um, have deployed all kinds of strategies as part of their struggle to curb oil palm expansion on their customary lands and to raise national and international awareness really on the not just the environmental side of the palm oil story but the human side of the palm oil story which invariably tends to receive less, less attention than the ecological or environmental impacts of palm oil. Um, there's a lot of controversy, growing global awareness and consumer outcry about things like biodiversity loss and deforestation and the threat posed by monocrops to charismatic megafauna mm. um, which is indubitably part of the story but there's been much less attention to the impacts of plantations on those communities that are being displaced and or dispossessed by these capitalist incursions. And in some ways, that's really part of what my research is trying to do, uh, and also to highlight the ways in which indigenous peoples themselves are at the forefront of grassroots activism. Um, so some of the strategies adopted so far, so participatory mapping has been one. Um, another has been um, planting sago. 
So people, sago is a plant of central significance in Mayan cosmology. It's the source of their staple starch, sago flour, but its importance vastly transcends the pragmatics of subsistence. It's considered a, a, a kin that Mayans share ancestral descent with. It's considered a nurturing plant, a giving plant, a maternal figure in many ways. Um, and part of the movement uh, is to plant sago, uh, where it used to grow, where it never grew, but where it deserves to have a space now, uh, and recreating in some ways vegetal boundaries or, or markers of territories in, in alliance with this vegetal kin. Other strategies have included uh, bringing court uh, complaints or grievances to United Nations human rights bodies, including the UN uh, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or UN CERD, complaints to the UN Special Rapporteurs, both on the right to food and on the rights of indigenous peoples. Cases have also been uh, brought to the financiers of some of these big oil palm um, uh, conglomerates and to try to block the, the, the financial flows that are enabling these companies to invest in 100,000, 200,000 hectare land banks uh, and land concessions in West Papua. So um, indigenous activists are working at different levels from the grassroots all the way to the international. Um, they're working with a whole array of different actors from environmental and social NGOs to uh, some um, uh, progressive companies that are trying to raise the bar on their practices. Um, they're also working with academics um, who are bringing in an anthropological, sociological perspective to the advocacy uh, and to the complaints, complaint documents that are being submitted to government bodies um, and, and to corporations. Um, so, and then really in the last five years, this advocacy has, has really gained momentum. Um, now, of course, uh, the more this advocacy has gained momentum, the more there have been adverse repercussions on the mm. ground for those who are really at the front lines of the movement. Um, and by, by that, I mean the communities living in the villages that are now encircled by these monocrop plantations. Um, Marind are very aware that advocacy has its risks. Um, they're very concerned about the plight of environmental and land right defenders, uh, which is one of the main topics at the moment uh, under discussion at the UN. Um, and they're very aware that uh, whenever they take a, they, whenever they make a step forward in their advocacy, it also means heightened military, corporate and state surveillance, intimidation and harassment on the ground, be it in the form of uh, guess, interrogations, um, in extrajudicial incarcerations, the confiscation of their identity documents, and other forms of control um, that restrict people's mobility um, across the landscape, again, ironically, uh, and that also curb their freedoms of expression. Um, and there's, of course, the particular, particular context of West Papua, where any kind of discussion about rights is very easily, and I would say opportunistically interpreted by the Indonesian government as a claim to the right to self-determination in political terms. So you start to talk about the right to food, you very easily get criminalized as a potential separatist. So political, conf the very volatile political situation of West Papua makes it very difficult for activism to activists to frame their struggle in terms of rights, because mm -hmm. rights are interpreted as political rights. Mm -hmm. um, other challenges, of course, bring us back to this uh, multi-sensory uh, uh, mapping process um, and the fact that uh, many Maori are torn between seeing the strategic value of maps in advocacy contexts, but also finding it hard to reconcile their advocacy value with the value of maps as cultural resources. So a legitimate map in cultural terms is one that is composed of soundscapes and sound acoustics. But governments and corporate representatives have very little time and interest in listening to the stories and to the sounds that enliven place. And I saw this myself in negotiations um, 
with a particular oil palm company and the government. There was a long discussion before the meeting between among Marin themselves. Should we talk about the sounds? Will they listen? In the end, they decided that they would because that was part of their self-determination um, as, as, as indigenous communities, that they would represent place in the way that was culturally appropriate. The meeting backfired. Um, very soon, the indigenous communities lost credibility in the eyes of the corporations, of the government, who dismissed these sounds and stories as basically primitive and superstitious, and effectively as evidence in their own words that Marind were simply not ready to use modern technologies like mapping. Right? And if anything... That backfired by further justifying the very need for the kind of developments, all palm plantations and others, that Marind are trying to struggle against, mm -hmm. right? So there's, it's a really double-edged sword, as one Marind woman put it. Maps can be a shield for us indigenous peoples, um, but they can be a, you know, a tool for us. But when they're in the wrong hands, they can actually end up harming us, right? Um, so Marind are very cognizant of, of these problems. Um, the other challenge, of course, is that maps that are composed by movement uh, and, and sounds... Uh, they never sit still, right? Mm -hmm. So these maps are constantly open to revision, to amendment, to transformations. And this is very much what would happen, um, that maps, GPS points move, um, species move. So the fact that these, these maps don't sit still um, also does pose a challenge to their to the legitimacy as evidence or proof, if you wish, in things like court cases and in negotiations with state and corporate actors. So it's really trying to reconcile the politics of space and its visual representation, uh, both in cultural terms and in advocacy terms, um, that, that is at the forefront of many of the internal discussions and conundrums um, mm. that are taking place in, in Marin villages mm. uh, up to the present. Really. We've got incommensurabilities between um, not only epistemologies and ontologies, but in language, in representation, in uh, goals, um, lifestyles, purpose, Values, any word you want to think of, almost the, the there are these incommensurabilities, and at the moment the power lies clearly with the government officials, with military and police. I presume are brought in from what you've been to say, you've been saying, from the uh, the power of the machinery. So these incommensurate values are being imposed on the Marin people. I think this will probably be my last question, Sophie, unless, unless your answer drives me to ask another. What sort of world would we have if that were reversed? That's a wonderful question. Um, it's a hopeful question, and I don't think it's an entirely unrealistic question, one, because for all the power, for all the hegemony power of the state and corporations, um, Indigenous activism is well and alive, and it's growing stronger, and the people that I work with are are examples of that courage, that resilience, that creativity, that innovation um, that really, for me, characterizes a lot of the um, indigenous um, struggles and, and campaigns, um, certainly in West Papua. So a world where that paradynamic would be reversed um, and where these onto-epistemological incommensurabilities could perhaps be overcome, what would it look like? Well, it would be... Um, a world, to go back really to the starting point of a conversation, uh, that is not entrenched in an assumed division or hierarchy between the natural world and the human world, nature culture. Um, it would be a world in which more than human species deserve and have a place within 
place and one that is respected. Um, it would be a world in which humans are not uh, cut off from interspecies relations of reciprocity, care, that really give meaning and give flesh to lived existence. It would be a world in which the landscape and its resources are subject to negotiation and exchange rather than to one-sided control by one party, in this case, the human. Um, although Marwin would also say that oil palm, the plant, is also part of this, you know, um, imbalance um, or, or you know, uh, yeah, power imbalance um, in a more than human sense. I think a world um, where this paradigmic would be reversed is also one in which uh, the natural abundance of of of, of ecologies like forests uh, would be acknowledged and respected. Um, it's a natural abundance in one sense. It's also a cultivated abundance in the sense that the forest is always already the product of the actions and relations of past generations of humans and their more than human kin. So this world would be one that sees forest landscapes and other ecologies as not, not only storied, but also temporally multiple. Um, these places, histories are inscribed in place uh, and respecting those history mean, would therefore mean respecting the places and the species that inhabit them. And so there's, there's a temporal dimension as well as a spatial one, I think. Um, and I suppose also um, it would be a world in which interconnections are recognized, I think, across species lines, um, across gendered lines. Modern communities see the landscape also in gender terms. Uh, men and women have particular relationships with particular species and places, and they are always complementary, and you cannot have one without the other. Um, there are intergenerational differences in the way people think and relate to place as well, which are, again, complementary. So there's fascinating transversal vectors of identity that, again, multiply the meanings that are embedded and inscribed within place. And I think respecting those intergenerational, more than human, gendered, storied and temporal dimensions of space would be the kind of premises, the kind of principles, philosophical and practical, that would lie at the heart of a world in which these power dynamics would be reversed. And I certainly think it's a world that would be more livable, uh, not just for humans um, situated as they are, but also for the many more than human beings with whom we share this world. Sophie, you talked about Marin relationship with they're more than human kin, with the plants in their own environment. And one of the things that really interested me in your presentation and in other presentations that I've heard you give is their ongoing philosophical inquiry into the changes in their world. And one of those inquiries or one of those uh, sets of reflections are about their engagement with the oil palms that have been brought by outsiders to their environment that are invading their natural territory. Sophie, can you talk to us about their view of the oil palm, which is one of the most, for me, one of the most uh, empathetic and uh, um, interesting reflections on an invasive species uh, in, a, in, a, in an environment? Absolutely. Um Yes. So one of the diagnostic moments in my in the early days of my research was realizing that 
a lot of the time when I was listening to Marin talking uh, and they would be criticizing a certain entity or um, you know, expressing pity towards a certain entity or feeling curious about a certain entity, I always assumed that they were talking about some human person, either in the village or in a company or in the government. Um, and it took me months, in fact, to realize that they weren't talking about another human being. They were talking about oil palm. Much like Marin considered forest plants and animals to be agentive, sentient persons, so too they extend sentience and volition to oil palm. This introduced cash crop uh, that has only really arrived in the region in the last 10 years. And there's a very complex and I'd say remarkably nuanced ecology of affects that surrounds this recently introduced plant being. So on one hand, um, oil palm differs from forest plants and animals because it's characterized by Marin as a, as a quite voracious greedy and destructive plant being. So whereas plants and animals in the forest maintain symbiotic relationships with each other and with Marind, oil palm is a plant that, as Marind say, eats the land, saps the waters from the river and devours the forest, right? It kills off this, this diverse forest life world that Marind live in and with. And so there's a lot of resentment and anger expressed towards this plant. At the same time, of course, Marin are perfectly aware that there are human actors and institutions that have uprooted quite literally this plant from its native, in this case, West African soils, and that are cultivating, cultivating it under this monocrop, um, on monocrop model. And realizing or thinking through the, the, the violence that the cash crop itself is subjected to under these techno-scientific capitalist um, assemblages brings Marin to express pity compassion towards oil palm. It's a plant, as they say, that's been ripped out of its native soils. It's far from its native kin and environments. It's a plant whose seeds are technologically and genetically manipulated and modified in sterile laboratories and urban centers. It's a plant that's made to grow in plastic bags or in cement nurseries rather than in the soil and the warmth, growth, warmth of the soil itself. It's a plant that's artificially pollinated, um, that is cut off from its relationship with birds, with the wind, with pollinators. Um, it's also a plant that is mulched, extracted, that is you know, completely transformed into a commodity as, as capital to serve human ends. Um, crude palm oil actually is bright red in color before it's pure, before it's refined. And Marin talk about it, they describe it as a palm, palm oil blood, right? Zawidara in Bahasa. It's, it's, it's the lifeblood of this plant that has been sapped and sucked out of it. Um, and in this sort of capitalist guise where there's never enough, right? The, the goal is always to produce more, to increase yields, to increase optimal production, to, 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 to torque this plant's genetics to make it more productive, right? Uh, and so all of that gives rise to a deep sense of compassion, or kasihan, as they say, a sense of pity for this plant. And then the third most prevalent sentiment surrounding oil palm, I would say, is one of wonder and curiosity. Oil palm is not native to West Papua. Yet its scientific name, Elias guineensis, has the word Guinea in it. When Marin found this out, they were very, very intrigued because the plant is from West African Guinea, hence the name. Um, but for Marin Marin, it suggested a potential past kinship or shared origin of sorts between plants and people in African Guinea and plants and people in the island of New Guinea. Right? Um, could we have been connected in some ways in the past? Is this a revived connection in a different guise? Of course, a very destructive guys, but a connection nonetheless. Um, Marind also compare oil palm to sago palm, 
this uh, the native the source of their stable starch, plant of central cosmological significance. Why? Well, I mean, as destructive as all palm is, it bears a lot of morphological resemblances to the sago palm. They're both part of the broader arakeke or palm family. Just as sago palms provide marwind with nourishing wetness in the form of starch and piss, so too the oil palm is a source of palm oil, an equally versatile source of food and fuel, not just for local peoples in Indonesia, but also across the world. Um, eating sago starch connects marwind to other sago-eating communities across New Guinea. So too consuming palm oil connects them to palm oil consumers across the planet, including ourselves. Um, palm oil is in 80% of all foodstuffs in supermarket shelves. It's hugely ubiquitous and consuming it connects us as well in invisible sorts of ways. So there's an incredible sort of curiosity as to how oil palm grows in its native lands. Is it as destructive there as it is in West Papua? Possibly not. And through that curiosity, that sense of wonder, I think really mind are trying to, it's, it's a way of caring. It's an incredible way of caring for the life world of this plant that is manipulated, exploited by these capitalist um, structures. Uh, and by expressing curiosity, Marindar, Marindar caring for a plant, despite the fact that it can be so destructive, ultimately, it is not just a perpetrator of violence, it is also itself subject to all kinds of human, machinic and institutional violence. Mm. Thank you, Sophie. That's an extraordinary thing. And it links very nicely back to um, the discussion you were having about the maps and the, the Marin view that there is interconnection between everything. It seems to me in their explorations of the worlds, what they are looking for is the way things are connected, which is clearly so very different to the way that uh, things are uh, represented on maps and the way that uh, a lot of Western thought is. So thank you. Sophie, thank you for being the first of our speakers. Um, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your thought and I think your research is absolutely fascinating and wonderful. The more we can do to get it out into the world, the better. Thanks, Sophie. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Christine. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been a joy. <laughs> yes.